everyone. Thanks for joining us again on Reality 2.0. I'm Catherine Druckmann. Joining me is, as always, Doc Searles. And today we have our two favorite special guests. We have Kyle Rankin and Petros Katupis, who I, I hope don't need introductions at this point. Um, if if they do, well, then then click to go to our website at reality2cast.com and click their bios. But um, suffice it to say, they're, they're some of my favorite people. And, and we have a few things on the agenda for today. We, we, you know, there's so much going on as always. And we've had a little, a few uh, offline conversations about some topics that interest us and, or are getting under our skin a bit. Um, and so I thought we would just kind of launch into those. Um, you know, so I think the first one maybe the, that's, that we could cover is, uh, well, let's see, how do I put this without causing too much controversy? <laughs> that's just the idea of siloed social, silos of, of any kind, but in particular social media um, and perceived censorship as it, as it applies to social media. Um, that, that's, a, that's a hot topic right now. And, and I think we all have opinions, probably some pretty strong ones. And we, you know, we have some interesting experiences to bring to the table. And I thought we, we might just kind of get right into that. Before we get going, I wanted to quickly remind everyone to please go sign up for our newsletter. You can find a link on our website, reality2cast.com, and just click the newsletter or subscribe link. Thanks. Cool. Um, I, I don't know if where, we need to where, where, where name, do you want to name start? the name. <laughs> if we want to say the word parlor or not, but <laughs> maybe we might as well. I mean, it's going to be the elephant in the room. You know, uh, when, when this comes out, it'll be a week I'm still from missing now. What, the, what, what the elephant is. Uh, uh, parlor the do you not know about parlor no oh I, I, this is going to be a great episode I, 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 I have one but i'm not sure that's the same <laughs> that kind you're of talking parlor. about no there's a well if you've been on any kind of social media recently you've seen a lot you may have seen even people you know uh share their their new uh, profile link for a new social network it's not new i think it's been around for a couple of years but it's, it's gotten a lot of attention lately because i think it's it's a bit of an exodus that is um, folks who, who identify with a more conservative crowd um, because they feel like uh, Facebook has um, censored conservative oh. viewpoints during the last campaign and election. So as a result, many individuals are migrating uh, either temporarily or permanently to a, another social media network called Parler. So yes, hmm. just like Catherine said, they've been sharing their Parler handles uh, on Facebook for those who decide to um, jump over the fence and, and, and head over there. And, and, and one of the claims to like fame. A, is, is there a U in it like or not a U? French. No. P-A-R-L-E-R. Oh, par yes. oh, 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 I see. Parler. Parler. <laughs> yeah, parler. Just, you know, probably yeah. the domain um, that was available. <laughs> ah, parler. Okay. Yeah. So, but yeah. So, and the other thing about this is that one of their claims to fame is is sort of like Gab, where they take a strong free speech stance. Um, I, I will put that. You can't see my air quotes, uh, but I will put that in air quotes because it, you know, it, a lot of people misapply the First Amendment to private networks. But in any, which I'm sure we'll talk about here in a little bit. But in any case, one of their claims to fame is is that they don't censor posts; that they pretty much allow you to say what you want to say. Um, and so, as a result, a lot of people who are concerned about censorship on Twitter and Facebook um, have that have moved over there, and and in particular on the conservative side, just because, like with any social 
uh, network, there's a network effect. So you want to be in the social network where all of your friends are so you can communicate with them. And in particular, where it's pop, it's fun to be where there's a bunch of like-minded people. Um, and so, you know, recently over the last, really over, it seems like almost over the last week or two, because I knew nothing about the social network for the longest time. And then as news started popping up here and there last week, really, about, you know, people doing a wholesale exodus. Of course, I also remember this when the same thing happened for the, some of the first Mastodon instances where everyone um, was was upset about some other Twitter policy like four years ago, five years ago. And a lot of InfoSec people started wholesale moving over there. And, you know, folks like myself still have a presence on Mastodon, but, uh, you know, and, and there's a lot of pros and cons for it. Uh, but yeah, I mean, that's, this isn't the first time that you've seen a lot of people uh, try to get the network effect to move people to a new social network. Yeah, I mentioned this offline, but it it also reminds me of the early days of uh, uh, Google Plus when when there was um, you know Google Plus was touting its uh, its early policies, which uh, were correct me if I'm wrong, but I remember in the beginning they were sort of pushing that uh, you know your data is yours type of uh, mindset, and it was trying to appeal to an audience that was concerned about privacy, but we all know Google and their stance on privacy. So it didn't really uh, land very well. And the migration to Google plus was, was very small. People were already well ingrained within Facebook and, you know, your family, your friends, very few jumped over with you to, to Google plus. So, you know, it didn't, it didn't last very long. And and I, I, yeah, their their claim to fame was, was, I was going to say their claim to fame was access control sort of where um, the idea was the the problem with Facebook a long time ago was, okay, you have Facebook with you and your friends and people are posting pictures of the party they went to last weekend, but then your mom or dad wants to friend you and then there's no access control. So everyone can see everything. And um, so Google plus at first they had this whole thing where you could say, who, who are your friends? Who's your family and all these different groups Mm -hmm. and essentially control who sees what. And of course, Facebook has that feature now. So it was just an extra feature that Facebook could incorporate. I but remember at now. At the beginning, that was yeah. sort of the thing. Yeah. The, the circles. That was a big yeah, thing. Yeah, you're right. It actually, it required a lot of, it was great. It seemed like a great idea at the time, but it required a lot of work, you know, to, to set up and, and curate and constantly wonder, you know, which circles you were targeting. And it's the same with, you know, Facebook or anything else. What's interesting to me, though, about this, this parlor thing. Or setting is, up groups on Linux. Oh, well, yes. <laughs> There's always that uh, parallel there, isn't there? Um, but what I think what what can uh, it concerns me. I, I think it's fair to say concerns me about Parlor and the the people that I see, you know, setting up profiles there, is that I think they're kind of missing the point that going to yet another private company and giving them your information and, you know, why do they think that's any different than than Facebook? I mean, at this point, yes, okay, they're 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 telling you it is, or or they're they're promising you some some level of quote unquote as you say, uh, free speech. You know they can change their terms of service. You know I sh- I suspect nobody's actually read any of their terms of service. There was something interesting that's been brought up, and that is that Parler has an indemnity clause, and which is an, which is apparently unlike Twitter and Facebook. I I admit I've not actually scrutinized their terms of service that thoroughly, and but that makes me wonder like do they think like why do they think it's necessary? And they, you know is it because they think. You know, they saw writing on the wall with with certain regulation and they thought they might lose some of their liability and thus needed to slip that in there. You know, I, I don't know. I'm 
know, unfortunately, none of us have law degrees. But anyway, I, you know, I, I think it's, I think it's interesting because I think that's a, that's, I think what's happening is people have gotten this sort of general idea that something is wrong with Facebook. They don't know what it is necessarily, and we're not necessarily even talking about tech savvy people. We're talking about a different crowd, let's say. You know, as far as they they know or are aware, Facebook has problems. They don't know what the problems are. They've seen they've seen posts that they want to believe get censored or grayed out with a little information icon or, or however they they do that these days. And so they see this as an escape hatch. And and I just I'm concerned for this large-ish group of people that that they they don't quite know what they're getting into. I think well, they're moving from one moderator to another. I mean, yeah. This happens on on Mastodon quite a bit where you will have, because it's so federated and because all of the instances can, in theory, talk to each other, sometimes you'll have a falling out because many Mastodon instances are more or less governed by the whims of a sysadmin who decided to spin it up. They are not perfect moderators and they have biases and those show. And so people will um, jump ship pretty quickly from one instance to another to find almost like a fiefdom that that more aligns with their views, or at least the moderator aligns with their views. And this is similar, with similar flaws to that idea, um, but it also has a side benefit. From my, my understanding, it's not federated or anything. It's a proprietary network. So, you know, you're either on there or you're not. You, you know, if you don't like their rules, you don't necessarily have a way to communicate with those people through some other client or anything. The, the way I put it earlier in the week was trading one Zuckerberg for a new Zuckerberg. You know, if you're if you have problems with Mark Zuckerberg and his you yeah. know and, and Facebook and the way that they handle things, why would why would you think it would be that much different, you know, if this other well, entity achieves some level of success? Well, clearly they you know, I mean I mean it's I just I just did a bunch of looking on Twitter about it and it seems like it's just like this kind of a mad rush by a bunch of the I had to apply the term conservative because I don't think they're all conserving anything, but, but there's a, a, a rush to, um, to, to get off Facebook and Twitter for that matter and onto something that will not censor them and as they see it, censor them. And I, I think that's all it's about. I don't think they care. I don't think they cared that much about Zuckerberg personally. I don't think they care that much about Jack Dorsey personally. They just know that they were, uh, you know, fingered for offenses at, at both places for various reasons, and they want to go to some places, not going to do that. And I think I don't think they care that much about the the privacy aspects of it. I mean, a, a problem for Facebook and, and for that matter, Twitter, for all of us actually, is that it's not the elephant that feels different to everybody. It's it's a new animal. It's designed to feel different to everybody. It looks different to everybody. We all have our own our own feeds, our own you know, our own preferences, our own you know, whatever it is. I mean, it's, it's, it shape shifts for each of us, depending on what we've looked at and who we follow and all the rest of it. And it's by design. So th there's no uniform vision to it. I think a lot of people, I think you're right. I think you said it, Catherine, that a lot of people are sort of creeped out by Facebook or, but it's only because they've read a bunch of stuff about, Hey, you're not private there. Um, right. And they're or they watched like, the movie <laughs> or they watched that movie, they you know, the movie so. on Netflix. And now they're scared of Facebook. They're not entirely sure why even. Right. Yeah. Cause they think there's some, some human AIs there that got, that are staring at them at all times and trying to customize to them personally, which by the way, is not exactly what's going on, but it worked, you know, uh, cinematically. 
you know, but they don't know what else to do. I mean, I'm there too. I mean, I have lots of relatives and friends that are, do not exist on the internet or, or for that matter in correspondence, except through Facebook, mm-hmm. um, uh, less so with Twitter, but certainly with Facebook. And, you know, but I just think it's, I, I mean, I don't know, the, the older I get, the, the earlier it seems, I just think this is yet another, I mean, it, it's like, let's jump from one platform to another platform to another platform before we discover that, you know, what, we don't need to be on them. <laughs> we don't need platforms <laughs> for all this stuff. You can do this stuff without platforms. I mean, the, the Federation aspect of Mastodon is interesting, but it's also kind of like a modified version of that. And, you know, we haven't discovered the way that any of us can get a kind of scale with readers or followers or listeners or, or anything without a platform. And I think we had that. We do have that to some degree with, with blogging the way it was in the first place. You know, I mean, somehow I had like 20,000, 30,000, whatever it was, subscribers to my blog, which is, you know, um, it was on a platform, but it's essentially mine. But then the software changed and it had to go away. <laughs> you know, so we, we haven't solved this thing yet. Not, not in a way that, that scales up for anybody, I don't think. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that about your blog. You know, the software changed and, and it went away. That's the. Uh... Yeah, well, it was early enough. I mean, I don't think Dave Weiner, and we'll have to have him on the show sometime. Um, I don't think he wanted to run a platform. I think he wanted to give people software, you yeah. know, and 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 the software would be theirs. They have it, and they can do stuff with it. And and but he developed something that was fundamentally for him and shared it with a whole lot of other people. They used it too. Uh, it got deprecated over time. He didn't have many other developers working on it. I don't know what the exact story was, but, you know, it ended up, you know, getting uh, mothballed. And I mean, my, my old blog is still on the air somewhere in mothballed form, but, <laughs> you know, my current blog, you know, runs at Harvard and I'm utterly at the mercy there. They could shut that off anytime they want. Uh, and they've already shut off commenting because somebody in inside Harvard decided, well, it's, these are all Harvard blogs, so we're only going to allow people with Harvard email addresses or Harvard logins to comment on it, and all comments have stopped. And I've asked a number of times, can you straighten that out? But nobody I've talked to has done that. So I, you know, ultimately, I, you know, I, I want to go somewhere else, but where's that where? You know, yeah, ideally, so it's, it's at Searles.com, but Searles.com is on a, on a cloud, and uh, Petro's helped me put computer. it there, you know, and that's fine. I think the nice thing about that is that all clouds are substitutable for that kind of thing, which is great. If I don't like uh, one-on-one, which I'm using now, I can move it somewhere else, you know, but, but the, the ability to stand up your own stuff, I mean, it's really hard. I mean, that, that was one of the key points that Hadrian uh, Sparcia made a couple of shows ago, which is that the way Apache started out, we all think of it as like, that's a corporate thing, web servers, but they're actually meant for people. They're meant for individuals. You can have your own web server. Who's doing that now? <laughs> you know, it's like, well, you know. So that's an interesting segue into one of the other topics that we've been talking about. And that's, well, it's being owned by platforms instead of the other way around. And I think, you know, we all have in yeah. common that we are, we have a bit of a DIY and obviously open source mentality where we, 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 we know how to do these things ourselves. We don't want to be trapped by a platform. And yet we, we probably still find ourselves in that position from time to time. Platforms like Google, Gmail, uh, we were talking about Google Photos earlier, um, but it's the, the same is true of, of anything. Anything we use as a blogging f- platform, the thing that's that's hosting uh, the podcast. Now, 
podcast is a little different. I mean, it, well, it's only different in that I have it all backed up and it's easy to export and move around, but we're still relying on somebody else's platform. You know, and I think that's true. Yeah, I, I think as long as it's, I mean, we're at a point where unfortunately, and maybe fortunately, I don't know, depends on what side of it you stand on. There's just a lot of things that a, and a platform is even a, a crappy word. I mean, because it means yeah. different things in different contexts, but having a utility hosting service that's basically vanilla, okay? I mean, whether you're on one-on-one or S3 or, or you know, Azure or one of the other ones, you're, you're basically just moving, you know, rack space. You're just kind of moving from one place to another. They have add-on services, but for the most part, they're substitutable. And, and right. if you want to, you can take it to your own. You can, you can run your own if you want. If, and if I you think have the time that, to devote to it. That, exactly. That's the, well, you know, that, that's you know, the thing. You know, we you can have, and we know how. But yeah, I mean, with email, for example, I mean, I, I'm using, I paid 10 bucks a month to Rackspace to have for them to handle Searles.com mail. That's my domain. And I used to have a server for that, but I don't anymore because it was, I couldn't run Spam Assassin. Spam Assassin was just too hard to run for me. And, and they've got a better system than Spam Assassin was, at least for me. Maybe it's better for everybody else now, but they were, they're pretty good at dealing with spam. So but I don't have to have it there. I can take it out and I can put it in my own, you know, run it again if I want. Uh, and I don't think they care. I mean, they're, but, but I am vulnerable. I mean, I suppose if somebody wants to, you know, the feds want to go to Rackspace and say, we want to look at all of Searle's mail. They can, you know, in a way they may not be able to as easily with, if yeah, I was running that server on my own. They can't get into Yeah. <laughs> Unless you're in Oregon. I don't know. I can't remember how that works. Yeah, but anyway. Yeah. Uh, so, so uh, yeah. So what? Y'all have any thoughts about being beholden? Even though I mean, again, we're not. We don't have to be, but somehow, out of convenience, we. Well, well, not necessarily well, even us, but in general, we as humans are beholden to all of these different. I I know before this, and maybe this is in the call already. Is you know what, what Kyle was pointing out about what Apple's doing right now with their operating system. Do, do you want to take that one, Kyle? I think sure. Pretty um, thoughtful about it. Yeah, yeah. So uh, the other day, uh, I think it was yesterday, the, uh, Apple announced the new Big Sur OS release. And around the time that they announced the update, that the update was available, um, so presumably people were downloading it, et cetera, uh, people started noticing on their Macs that they were having trouble launching soft programs. They, they would try to launch an application, and sometimes it would take you know a minute after saying to launch before the application showed up on their local machine. And these are machines that weren't running Big Sur. They were running previous versions of the OS. So, you know, it just happened to coincide coincidentally with that, which caused people to wonder, well, what's going on? And, and you know, people started troubleshooting this and, and were in, ended up tracking it down to this particular piece of software called, um, that's part of their notary service that essentially what people discovered, and I don't know how many people knew that this existed. So we know that um, code is often signed uh, for applications. If you wanna install a piece of software, there's a signature so you can verify it hasn't been tampered with before you install it, that it's the same as what, what the developer intended. And that's pretty common, you know, Macs do this, Windows does this, Linux distributions do the same thing. Um, this is a step further though. So what they were doing is when they you launch an application, what the notary service does is that it's not just Apple applications, but all signed applications. The OS, uh, if it's connected to the internet, will go to a remote notary service that Apple runs and see whether or not the signatures are valid. So has this binary been tampered with? Uh, and if so, 
then it comes back and it allows the software to run. And if you're unplugged, it just sort of fails silently. So what was happening here was that the servers that were running this apparently had some sort of issue, presumably related to this big server release. So they were sluggish. They weren't down, but they were sluggish. So the service didn't fail. It was just very slow. So people were seeing all kinds of odd errors because local applications weren't launching anymore. And you know, I, when I saw this news the other day, it what struck me was okay, interesting. You know, local your local computer is being affected by something in the cloud, just like all of those cloud appliances. Only this is a desktop computer. You know, it's behaving in the same sort of way. And yeah, what I found interesting about it was a couple of things. One that it exists, um, but two, I mean, it, the level of extra control. What sort of the implications of it? Because uh, it. Apple, with this feature, can control whether an application is allowed to run on your software. Now, right, oh, I'm sorry, on your OS. Now, right now, it's only in this, this security enforcement mode where if the signature doesn't match, um, it might flag it and stop it from running. But as we've seen with iOS, uh, they've often used the same signing type feature to enforce other things. For example, when they wanted to block all of those parental uh, control applications that were going to compete with their application, they in the name of privacy and security revoked them from the app store. And you could see a similar scenario happening on, on Macs where you wanna run an application. It's not just that you couldn't install it or update it, but they now have the ability to prevent you from even running it uh, through this mm -hmm. service. And uh, apparently with Big Sur update, it's not only that this is enabled and on by default, they've added extra protection so that say for example, um, some people were getting around this bug by using Little Snitch to block the outbound calls to this right. remote service. Apparently, with with Big Sur, you can't even do that. Um, these really? OS oh, features are, are, yeah, they're protected from user space. So, starting once you install Big Sur, alleged, apparently, I mean, I don't know. This is what I've read. Yeah, uh, once you install it. Big Sur, um, the all of the OS level network communication is shielded from user space. So little snitch can't see the things that uh, that the OS is, is doing, and which further implications to me are that also if you decided to run Tor, that yeah. you not you're not going to and v, they said this affects VPNs as well, where Apple communication wouldn't go over the VPN. Um, this could also potentially mean that Tor, you know, if you're using Tor, that Apple uh, communication wouldn't necessarily go over Tor either. Okay. So see, yeah, I, you don't. I thought little snitch started with Big Star, you can't stop it. See, I thought that there that that would that was you know showing a workaround. I, I must have misread quickly as I was reading today. Huh, yeah, it's yeah. a it's a workaround if you're not installed if you don't have Big Sur if installed. It's definitely versions. a workaround. But okay. once you've yeah yeah if you upgrade to the latest and greatest, then apparently from what I understand, it big uh, little snitch um, can't see that can't control that traffic anymore. Well, yeah. So so yeah, it's um, so yeah it <laughs> yet another trap. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, to me, it just it ra raises issues of ownership. You know, I mean, the, there's a lot of sort of quips out there that you don't own your phone, you rent it, and that sort of thing. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, it, when at Purism, we said stuff like that before, even in our, some of our marketing copy. But this really got me thinking about the concept of what ownership means, in in, in particular in the context of um, hackers, because a lot of times you'll like something that came out of sort of the hacker world that now is in gaming and everything else is, is the idea of owning somebody or in this case, owning a computer. So when a hacker says it, what they mean is I compromise the computer. I have full remote control. They don't mean 
the computer is on my lap, <laughs> you know, or right. I, I physically have it. What they say is I fully control it remotely. I effectively own it physically because I can do everything I need to remotely outside of the phys the person who has physical access is control, you know, mm -hmm. so they own the computer. Um, I mean, this and the same thing goes for if if you're at a, if a company provides you with a computer or even if you bring your own um, or bring your own phone also and they install um, the MDM software so that they can control it remotely and control what you do and control what you install, you know, you don't really own that computer, right? You know, they own the computer. Um, and so it's to me, I mean, the, the concept of ownership, if you at least go by that definition, then most people definitely don't own their phones. And in, it sounds like in many cases, you don't, if you have a Mac, you don't necessarily own that either because there's all of these things that are being done um, either without you knowing about it or against your will in some cases, but there's not much you can do about it. It's all remotely controlled. Yeah. So when you're talking about hardware, I think it's an even, I don't know if there are degrees of severity of, you know, one's lack of control over your digital products and your life <laughs> i think it's somehow hardware it makes it a little bit even more um, severe but it's the same thing with any kind of with a service uh you know with putting your email in somebody else's hands putting all of your photos and your you know your life story in somebody else's hands it's you know it's a similar effect even though you, there is something different i think about owning an object owning a machine you allow yourself to believe it a little bit more, I suppose, than, than uh, ownership yeah. of your data. Well, what prompted this was uh, offline. <clears throat> I went on a bit of a vent or, or rant <laughs> <laughs> complaining about uh, Google making adjustments to a lot of the services um, that they offer. And uh, a few of which um, affected me in, in the last month or so. Now, Google has a long history of putting out a product and then after some years, killing the product. I mean, it's it's just what they do. I mean, they, they've done it with Google Plus, Google Reader, you know, Google anything. It, it, it doesn't matter. They have a long history of just trying things out, seeing if it sticks, and if it doesn't, they get rid of it. But anyway, yeah, they recently, yesterday or two days ago, sent out an email you know, stating a few updates or adjustments to how they manage uh, Google Photos and, and your data and how it gets counted against your free Google storage. But it, this was just one in a few emails that I had gotten in, in recent days, uh, one of which was um, Google Voice being taken out of uh, the Google Hangouts uh, support, and the other of which was the going away of Google Music, which really aggravated me, and, I, and, and how... Um, uh, YouTube music was to replace that. Well, I don't like YouTube music. I hate the interface. I hate how it functions. I just, I'm just not a fan. So what did I do? I, everything that I uploaded, I downloaded back and, and now I'm managing my music elsewhere because I refuse to use YouTube music. But this was a bit of the rant that uh, I was, <laughs> I was sort of, um, you know, going off on uh, earlier that that kind of led to this uh, this conversation. Yeah, with uh, with I mean, with Google Photos, like I made a decision. A lot of people told me that you know I've got like seventy thousand photos on Flickr, and um, and I was really afraid for a while when Flickr, you know, it had 
was owned by itself and then they sold themselves to um yahoo right it was yahoo right and then and then it was pretty clear when yahoo was unloading all its properties that they were going to either deep six uh, flicker or or send it somewhere else and and it ended up getting bought by smug mug and smug mug has actually been a pretty good custodian of it but but in the meantime a lot of people said well put it you know take all your photos and put them in put them in uh in Google because it's free. And, you know, and I thought the chance that Google is going to get rid of those uh, is pretty high. Uh, Google's record of holding on to a service that people don't pay for is, is pretty lousy. Um, I expect, you know, that probably, as you were saying, maybe Gmail and search are the last things they'll get rid of. I, I don't know, but I mean, I think that there's a fundamental conundrum here that we're just struggling with, with in a long, uh, that's going to take a long time to work out. And we really do need, you know, companies like Kyle's to, to, to work on the frontier of, which is how can we, how can we be independent? I mean, that's really, you know, a, a personal thing. I mean, we, um, there's a really good book by, um, uh, Oh my God, he wrote. The, 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 I know this guy really well, and I'm not. I'm blanking on his name anyway. Uh, called called um, Lewis Hyde. Lewis Hyde. He wrote a book, a, a famous book called The Gift, and he got a MacArthur Fellowship for that. Um, but he wrote one years later called uh, Common as Air, and it's about the commons in a general way, but which is something that's maintained by a community, but is not necessarily owned by anybody. And he talked about ownership and property is basically a bundle of rights. It's not, it's not, you don't own anything outright. You have a bundle of rights. And, and I think that we haven't worked that out yet um, online. I mean, he was talking about it saying things like, okay, you've got a house, but your house is in the suburbs and you own that house. You have a bunch of rights around that house, but that doesn't include the right to say, you know, raise cattle in your yard. I mean, there, there, there are community understandings about that. And you don't have the right to, you know, set off rockets in your front yard or, you know, or to maintain a slaughterhouse near your backyard, whatever it is. It, it's that there, but there's a similar kind of understanding we don't yet have, I think, for organizations, you know, and, and this includes the big, the big platforms and, and just even the back end platforms like S3 and Azure and the rest of them that, you know, what, what rights do we have within that? What rights do we have? For example, we didn't pay our bill to keep them from just completely deep sixing our lives um, and erasing them. I mean, it's really, it's really a tough question. Um, there've been any number of platforms that have gone under and have left nothing for as a trace. And, you know, I don't know what happened to Friendster. I think Friendster is totally gone. I, I think there, there are lots of things for which they, you know, nothing exists. Back when, I mean, I, I, have, I have loose leaves over here that have in them a kind of bound volume of of messages sent back and forth on CompuServe in like the 90s, maybe in the 80s, um, because CompuServe was the closest that we had to the internet at that time. But they didn't store anything. It was all it was all kind of in a buffer, and you know you had a relatively brief time when you were communicating with somebody else. And actually, AOL's messaging was very much like that. So, you know, we I mean, in a way, almost everything we do is in in violation of the kind of whiteboard nature of digital existence, you know, all of it could be erased, all of it could be wiped out. Um, how do we make something persist? What's ours, what's not? And I, I think it's gonna take a long time before we figure it out. It's gonna be hard. 
So, you know, so that's interesting. So well, and I no, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, well, and, and we're starting to, we, for the longest time, because this, it was ephemeral and digital and not tangible, you know, the rules were, seem to be different. You know, if something goes away, it just sort of disappears and you don't really think about it because it was never physically in front of you to begin with. But now, especially now that we have so many connected devices and there's already been so many different stories of some sort of connected Internet of Things device that's that where all of the intelligence is in the cloud and it's it's 100% tethered to the cloud at all times where that company then goes up, burns out, goes out of business. And this ephemeral service, which is now tied to a tangible thing, that tangible thing, which before would have different rules applied to it, like say a thermostat or whatever it is, uh, where when the, the cloud service goes away, the company goes away. Now that, that device just no longer works anymore. It's not even that it falls back to some degraded mode. It's so fully tethered that even the absence of, of electricity, you know, it doesn't work. Uh, or I'm um, not electricity, but in the absence of, of the of the internet, it doesn't you know do anything. It's a brick, uh, and I think our having having our physical devices, um, having the rules for digital devices now going the opposite direction, going on to physical devices, is maybe starting to have a, starting us to have some of those conversations a little bit more urgently. For example, like this this thing that happened this week that we already talked about with Apple. I think a lot of people didn't think about how applications launching was tethered to the cloud um, in any way. You know, there's this notion that it's not because th that was those were the rules for computers for decades. Um, but as the digital rules are being applied in the physical space, um, instead of vice versa, you know, we're seeing these issues crop up or at least they're becoming more, they're having a stronger impact, I guess. Yeah, it's like, it's like the, the internet is a network of leashes <laughs> and, uh, you know, really like, like dog leashes with collars on them and we wear the collars. And I, I was thinking that, you know, where, the way PCs worked in the first place, you were offline. You know, you, you could dial onto a service like AOL or CompuServe or whatever, or dial into the actual internet itself. But uh, it you tended to be, you know, on and off. You only went on for a short time. There were bills to pay and so forth. But But now that everything lives in the cloud, I mean, it's, that's just, I mean, it just wants dependence. And I, I was thinking of, of what, you know, how, how could you be offline now? If, I mean, if, I mean, as an Apple user, what, what would an Apple user, I mean, I'm thinking of, okay, you've got your big Sur based computer um, and it's offline right now. Yeah. And you can, now you can't use your apps at all because you can't authenticate through the Apple God. That's insane. If that's, if, that, if that's what's actually going on, I, I would hope it's not. It doesn't make any sense because the, too much of life actually. It, it failed right now. It, yeah. I was going to say, yeah, right now, it, right now, if you're offline, it just lets you run it uh, for now, at least. Yeah. <laughs> for now. That's what it does. But it's, it, I mean, it's, it, it, it's a, it, I mean, it's interesting to see companies start, you know, they're, they're making a bunch of design decisions that presume connection to clouds at all times. And that. You know, I mean, and, and that's kind of the downside of a grace, which is it's possible to be connected at all times. And I suppose when Starlink is done and people in rural places are able to be on full time and, you know, there will be no place on earth where you could, you know, be safely offline, as it were, maybe that makes some weird kind of sense. Uh, but I think that Louis Brandeis and I forget his first name, Warren, who wrote really the, the, found, the foundational work on, on privacy as a right 
it was in the late 1800s and I think it was 1890. And it was about the, they decided the right of privacy was the right to be let alone as in let me alone, not left me alone, but let me alone. Um, and, and that was occasioned by the growth of photography and of recordings that it was possible now to capture voices and, and to capture images of people without their permission. And they needed a right to be left alone. Uh, and that's still sort of foundational, but it ain't in the constitution yet and never was. I mean, last week we talked about that kind of thing. All the things that were never in the constitution, like political parties and statutes, you know, and regulatory agencies, none of those were there. And, and we've just kind of ginned them up in the meantime. But I, I think that there's, we're going to go through, I think it's going to go in some ways, this is going to get worse before it gets better. And we need experiences like Apple's having right now with this one, like, what kind of dumb decision was it to require people who were even offline to log in in order to use their apps? Yeah. So what's interesting is this this idea or the question really of ownership or the fact that we have to revisit our understanding of what ownership is pretty constantly kind of ties into something else that, that um, I've brought up this week. And that is yet again, <laughs> something that we've talked about many times, and that is uh, open source, open source licensing, open source culture, open source awareness, even. And I feel like this is something I bring up, I don't know, maybe once every six months and, and you know, going way back until, you know, back in the, in the before time when Linux Journal was still a thing. And that's, you know, I, I, I see every once in a while, and I feel like I need to, to raise this to, to, to y'all and to our, you know. Our, our smaller little open source group here, it's that I see people questioning, you know, now that open source is ubiquitous and it, you know, everything, everything runs on some kind of open source software somewhere at some level, right? And people now start to question, they go, hey, wait a second, this, this big platform is making a ton of money off of this code that I wrote, but I'm not. And you, you have to wonder what their understanding of the open source, both the, the social contract, the actual license, you know, what, what their understanding of it when they wrote this code, you know? And, and I feel like while, you know, the, the people writing all of this are people who could maybe possibly, you know, recite the four freedoms themselves, still maybe are struggling with this idea. And I think that's interesting. And I wonder I mean, I understand why it is because, it, you know, in the early days of free, free software, nobody was making a ton of money off of it, right? I mean, the very beginning and then people started to and, and you know, there, it ebbs and flows, I guess. But, but now everybody at some level is taking advantage, quote unquote, of, of, of free code. And um, I don't know, is this a problem? Is this not a problem? Is it something that some open source community somewhere needs to address? I mean, it, 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 it goes back fundamentally to this idea of ownership. You know, who, who owns the code that powers everything, you know, from your laptop to your, you know, your social network? And what does it mean to own? I mean, what does it mean to, to me, own? that's sort of a fundamental question. It's, yeah. is it, you know, do you, do you also control? I mean, it, it's, I think there's a lot of stuff in the world that's owned, but not necessarily controlled um and and does it matter does it matter what exactly we're talking about like does it matter if i'm talking about contributing to something like apache or you know linux kernel or does it matter if we're talking about some sort of web framework or library that you know a facebook a 
Twitter, a TikTok is using to make a lot of money, you know, that may, or, or even a product you just don't like, does it, does it somehow matter? I mean, obviously the, you know, on a, on a light, from a licensing perspective, it doesn't, but from a, an ideological perspective, does it matter? I don't know. I guess it does depends it on the something? project, right? Um, this isn't always the case, but you think about Apple, since we were just talking about Apple, you know, a good chunk of their uh, core operating system is uh, based off of FreeBSD. But in turn, they contribute code back and they also contribute money back to the project. So it's not that the project itself is, is not getting anything from the company. Um, and that's just one example. You have another example with Google and Android. I don't know if Google contributes any money to, to anything uh, related to the Linux kernel, but I know that they've contributed code back um, to the to you know to the kernel itself. Some of it rejected, I, I, if if memory serves. Um, this goes uh, you know a bit back, but at the same time, you know you have other companies to what you're alluding to, Catherine, and that is uh, they they take it, they use it, and they get the credit for it. Right? They're they're not. Um, supporting the the individuals that uh you know gave them the platform that they're relying on so i mean go ahead i'm sorry i was gonna say and what does it even mean to contribute back to the project i mean you contribute in terms of code and support and whatnot but in many cases we're talking about you know individual developers and and how they get they are supported yeah um which is interesting you know because and again the, the things that i read out there you know on the internets you know from from people i wouldn't in some ways, yes, actually complaining, you know, and saying the, the concern is just that it's an unsustainable situation. And, you know, it goes back to conversations we've had with, you know, the founder of Redis Labs and, and uh, others. But I guess what I wonder is, I kind of perceive it, not to over, oversimplify, but I perceive it as, you know, a model where people who write code for, for projects that are, you know, incredibly important and, and, you know, are, are propping up some, some, uh, you know, big money makers, you know, in some way, or basically like street musicians. And you've got this little, you've got this little cup and you're accepting donations, whether it's through your GitHub account or, or whatever it is. So, you you know, you're, there's this guy, this street musician who's making a ton of, of money for, I don't know, Sony records. <laughs> <laughs> and never seeing any of it. And I, th- and, and I think that's where the social contract starts to break down. And I just, you know, I still wonder, this is my six month check-in of how that's affecting the open source world today and how big a problem well, is it really? I, th- I think the problem is, is that there's this, people have a contradictory expectation for this. Everyone wants, wants their cake and they want to eat it. They want to feel good about the fact that they're sharing their software out there and they want to have people contribute their free time back to the project they're working on. And some people you know, also want everyone to use their software. A lot of people, if they're sharing their software, they, the goal is to have other people use it, but they also somehow want to be able to charge people at whenever they want to as though it were proprietary software. And it's just, it's a con- contradictory thing. You ha- there's a solution for this, which is to not, if, if you want to charge for your software for people who you think can, who, who can afford it, then you can, I mean, Oracle has a business doing this. You know, you can sell database software 
and you can charge people according to what they can afford to pay you. Um, and you can give someone like a free trial of a thing if you want. And then if you find out they have money, you can charge them a lot more for something. I mean, you can do those things. Um, so I would, I guess my question to people is why did you license your software in the way that you did to begin with? Yeah, um, was it a kind of bait and switch thing, you know, where you're like, well, I, I think a lot of people think of free software and open source software like um, they're a seed round startup and they give it away for free or, or like any of these social networks that started out free. And then at some point, once they get critical mass, they switch from the free thing into some way to monetize. And I think a lot of people think of their open source software the same sort of way, like they release under the under a license that allows anyone to do what they want with it, as long as they share too. Uh, that's the contract, right? But but after but their hope, I think in the back of their mind, they think, yeah, but if I ever make it big, so how can I transfer this into a way where I can cash in? I mean, you see this a lot with open core companies where the idea is they're a seed round, they don't have a lot of money. By releasing the software out there, they get one, they get a lot of people using it and depending on it. That's the other important piece, using it and depending on that software. Hopefully they get some free developers to help them with that software and spread word of mouth. And then at some point, the other shoe drops and they say, okay, well, now we're going to switch to charge you all for it now that you're locked in and using it, right? And so to me, a lot of this argument seems, you know, I think people aren't, thinking through when they decide to license their software, what it really means, or maybe they're not being honest with themselves about what they want their software to be. Or, or maybe even it, it's not even, there's not that much awareness around it, especially when you're talking about individual developers or even, you know, just small, small projects made up of, you know, a handful of people that they start something, they don't necessarily think that far ahead. You know, they don't think about they don't put that much thought into the licensing. They they license it open source because that's what everybody else is doing, you know, or they, they're they in it to solve a problem, whatever that problem is, and they release it because that's just what you do. You know what I mean? I, I wonder if it's even there's that much thought put into it. I think that's not necessarily well, I think it's part just of the they, they do. I mean, I think there's this assumption that that if you if that the company that some let's some unnamed company that's using your library would would be using it if they had to pay you for it. They wouldn't. They would either find an alternative library or they would write one themselves more likely than not. Um, they're using your library just because it saves them the trouble of having to do it themselves. And what you hope for, and that's supposed to be a good thing, um, what you want is to work with the companies that are using your software. And hopefully they will they will release patches and, and fixes and improvements to your software. That's the I idealized model at least. I, well, I, I mean, I would agree that I think a lot of developers are somewhat unaware of sort of the underpinnings of, of free and open source well, licenses. Could, yeah. And so there's this assumption, they really think of it as just sort of like, well, I'm just putting this out there so other people can download my code and, and edit it maybe and do things. Yeah. But only if I like you. <laughs> and only if you're doing it for something I agree with, yeah, you know, and, and don't make money on it because, or if you do, I need a cut, you know, yeah. which you, again, there are models for that. It's called making proprietary software, right. right? Either use an existing license, write your own license that says, yes, if you want to use, you could even write one that says, if I like you, you can use it for free. And if I don't, I will charge you money. You know, I mean, you could write that. I don't know how 
how admissible that would be. I think that, that is a license. I it. think there's a license out there that is effectively that. I could be wrong, but um, yeah. I don't know what the reasoning is. My feeling is just, just being in the shoes of maybe that person, you know, sometimes. I feel like when you're when you're writing code, that's just not the first thing you're thinking about. You're 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 just trying to solve a problem. You're just trying to make something work. You're trying to you know scratch your own itch. Um, and then I you know I I just don't. I think a lot of people who ha- who have managed to come up with some successful you know projects, libraries, whatnot, didn't go into it really putting that much thought into the licensing. And again, because open source licenses or the, the most popular open source licenses are pretty ubiquitous. You just, you know, you write in your code, you check a box on GitHub, and then that's about the extent of your, your uh, consideration. But I could be completely wrong. Well, you're writing, you're, you're writing code with an IDE that is probably free software you didn't pay for under an open source license, maybe on an OS that has similar licensing that you didn't have to work on using other people's libraries that you didn't have to write yourself from scratch all the way down to the os Amen but to that. <laughs> if you become rich you don't have you don't you know it, it would it it's probably would be considered unfair if you made a big with your app that you decided to sell if you had a bunch of people knocking on your door and saying well you are hosting this on apache and you know that that's free software but you're making money so i would like my cut because you're hosting it on an apache web server and, oh, you're using WordPress. Well, that's free software. And so the WordPress people knock on your door and like, oh, well, and that's running on Linux. And so Linus is going to show up and want his handout. You know, it, it, everyone sort of, for some reason, people think that, well, you're sitting on this entire body of work that people have put so much effort for free into to share with everyone else. You're taking the benefit of that, just like the company that you're complaining about is taking the benefit of it. But that was the agreement. And yeah. because you got the benefit and they got the benefit and hopefully they're, they're, what's supposed to happen is they're not able to then take that and lock it away, but they have to share back anything that they do to improve it. And then everyone benefits. It's, it's a commons in that sense, you know? Well, that not all re- licensees require that. I mean, the GPL is famous for that, right? But uh, not all licensees are one in the same. I mean, I, I think of like the, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, the Mozilla and the, uh, the BSD uh, licenses. I think Apache is, is somewhat similar where, I mean, you can take, you can use however you feel and you don't have to contribute back. Sure. Yeah. I mean, and you can choose a license. There's plenty of licenses to choose from where you can sort of, you can, you can decide those terms. They're already, all of the major use cases are sort of have already been figured out. Um, and you can pick one of those if you don't want to have that restriction on people who use your software then you can pick ones that allow you to share it, but maybe they have to give you attribution or, you know, things like that. Um, yeah. I mean, there's total, there's all of these different options. And like I said, I just, I find it odd for, for the one developer who writes the one library and then finds out that someone with money is using it and decides they want to get paid, but they certainly don't want to pay the mountains of code that they are standing on the shoulders of to write their little library, you know? Right. But I, I guess the, the ultimate question, though, is at what point do, is there enough pushback that it does shift the open source community? I, I wonder, you know, at, at what point is it 
an actual, I wouldn't say threat, that's too, too strong a word, but at what point is it a significant enough disruption that there are enough people that are questioning the uh, open source social contract? I mean, I think what you're seeing now is people that have the, that don't necessarily have those ideals that are software developers that want to make money selling software. I mean, there's outlets in app stores for people to do just that, you know? And so a lot of people who otherwise would be contributing to this commons are choosing not to contribute to the commons, but instead are writing software that is free to use on an app store, but proprietary, or you can pay and not have ads or whatever. Um, but yeah, I mean, all of those. So we already have a this other group, this other community of people who are writing proprietary software all day long. Um, and I mean, I would argue some of the damage has been done because we're back to the shareware world of you know the the mid '90s with a lot of the software. Um, and there's still plenty of of people writing free software for sure. But th we could have we could certainly have more than we do. Um, for a lot of the, a lot of these projects that are out there that are in app stores, there's no necessary other than the need to monetize. There's not really a reason that they the the code couldn't be released and and benefit. But of course, it's it's the developer's prerogative. They're spending their effort. If they want to be compensated directly for that, that's fair. They can do that. Um, and I don't have I as much as I prefer free software. If I at least think it's honest for someone to say, I want to get paid for my work. Here's here are my terms. What I disagree with is. The contradiction of saying, "Well, I want all of the my all of the personal benefits of free software, but I don't want anyone else to have the benefits." You know, I don't want anything that could be only in ways that benefit me, but not ways that maybe benefit the community or someone else, or at least some, or someone I don't like. I just I wonder. I, I I suppose my my thoughts originate in the fact that I see people who have a lot more influence than maybe we do even having this conversation and I start to wonder like what the long-term impact of that is, but that remains to be seen. Um, so yeah, I think we've been talking a while. As you say, I mean, we're probably not going to solve this here. <laughs> I know. Yeah. I, I think, think we've talked, uh, we've beat this horse to death. Um, well, I don't, I, I think it's a live horse and it's uh, and it may not even be a horse and it's going to take a lot of work. <laughs> you know, it's uh, I mean, I think it's important that we're, we and other people like us are on the question. Yeah. You know, this isn't easy stuff to solve, you know, no, I mean, it's not. How, how do you make the funding work? How do you make the business work? How do you make, you know, the, the generosity side of open source work? How do you make the, you know, how, how do you make clear what the, what the business there is? I mean, it, it's, um, I mean, it's, it's interesting to me that, you know, trillions and uncounted trillions of dollars in businesses made possible by the fact that the internet is in the world and the internet does not have a business model by itself, you know, and, and looking for, I mean, I, I, I smite people almost daily who say advertising is the business model of the web. And it, no, that's like saying vacations are the business model of, uh, of, of sunlight. So what um, you're saying is we owe Al Gore a lot of money for, for we, inventing well, the internet. Well, well, we don't. I, and I, I'm I, kidding. I'm but kidding. yeah, no. But I think it's. But you know, I mean, but he, you know, he had a role. Um, you know, but I don't think he knew what he was. You know, what he was sitting loose in the world. I think most of the people who were working on the net and the web back in the founding days knew what they were doing. I mean, with the web, Tim Berners-Lee thought he was came up with a way for scientists to share documents, you know, and to do it for free through the phone system that we they he hoped wouldn't notice. 
and and they didn't <laughs> so and it changed the world and and you know we didn't even touch on on um solid maybe we could talk about that oh next time. yeah i completely forgot you know about solid, solid is time. now but but that's an interesting case i mean i i just let's why don't we have an assignment for our listeners <laughs> um which is take a look at what interrupt which is the company that is the primary participant in this solid ecosystem is doing and just look up tim berners-lee and solid and you'll find you'll find the code and you'll find the company and the whole idea is that you have your own you know a pod in which you have a lot of personal data that you can selectively share with others on an as-needed basis. And they've got an, an Inrupt as a company that that Tim's involved with that has an enterprise cell. And like so many of those things, it starts out by saying, this is all about people, give people freedom and so forth. And then the rest of it's all an enterprise pitch. And maybe that's the way it has to be done, but it's weird. There's something weird about it, but I'm curious to see what what listeners come up with with that. Okay, cool. Well, thanks for joining us, everyone. Uh, We will see you next time.